Okay, I'm going to read the first reading and then Tim's going to come up and read the second reading. So the first reading is from Romans 9, verse 30 through to 10:21, on page 1135. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The second readings from Revelation 7 on page 1241, starting at verse 9. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God for ever and ever. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them. Nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, good morning, everyone. A very warm welcome to our second ever Church Missionary Society, CMS Sunday. We're going to do things a little different this morning. I'm going to preach a shorter sermon, about 15 minutes. It is possible, and I'm sure the staff team will be setting their stopwatches now. I want to use our two Bible readings to paint uh, with some fairly broad brushstrokes the big picture of the Bible to help us zoom out, to appreciate the whole, to see where God's plan for our world is going, but also to help us zoom out from the focus that we have on our lives, our homes, our families, our careers, and broaden our view to see how we're called in uh, to join with what God is doing in our world. If you're here today just checking out who Jesus is, I hope you get a great picture of what we believe as a church and how it changes our whole worldview and gives real purpose and meaning to our lives. And if you've been a Christian in a while, I hope you find it encouraging as we hear from Nigel and Rose how they've uh, seen God powerfully at work in a different part of our world. And we'll consider how we can support and encourage them But also I hope we can be inspired, as Katie's already alluded to, to continue our local mission here to see many come to find Jesus and find the salvation and eternal life that only he offers. If we don't know each other that well yet, we consider it a great blessing to have newcomers amongst us each and every week. Uh, My name is Matt and I'm the senior pastor here. And if you know a few things about me, you know I'm a keen enthusiast for reading about great leaders throughout history in sport, business, mountaineering and politics, to name a few. And one thing I notice about great leaders is that they're very good at painting a picture of a possible future that could be, to, whether it's uh, to inspire a company, a sports team, a political party, whoever, to put in the hard yards, the late nights, keep giving until it hurts, trying to get to that desired outcome, that moment that you can almost feel. I've watched a lot of American football over the years, Gridiron, the NFL as it's called, and one of the greatest coaches ever in the history of NFL was a guy by the name of Vince Lombardi. So just imagine at the start of the season, Vince is there with his team, the pundits have already had their say and not rating them too much of a chance to go to the Super Bowl uh, that year. And ahead of them are many months of rigorous training 
physical pain, injuries, setbacks, and pushing each week until it hurts, week in, week out. And Vince gathers the team together, and this is uh, one of his great opening quotes at the start of a season. As he said to his team, I firmly believe that any man's finest hour and his greatest fulfilment to all he holds dear is that moment when he has worked with his heart out in, who's worked his heart out in a good cause and he lies exhausted on the field of battle, victorious. He's painting a moment, uh, a picture of a moment in the future that for now is just out of reach. It's a beautiful moment that every sportsman or woman can aspire to, lying on the field at the end of it all, exhausted, victorious. And in our fairly safe and affluent time and place in history here in Australia, I think such images are what draw so many of us into sport so heavily. We long for that emotion, that sense of purpose. Yet when rightly understood, we as followers of Jesus, if that's you, have been drawn into something far greater than simply a good cause or a sporting achievement, something really worth giving our hearts to and our whole lives to. Something far more difficult and dangerous than a grand final or taking a team to the Super Bowl or even winning a world war. All with the promise of lasting victory. And to understand that aright, we turn to the first of our two Bible readings today in Romans. And I'll say up front, there's a lot going on in both passages and we will come back in the future and do them both in detail. But for now, follow along with me and see if you can kind of grasp the big picture of it all. We jump into the middle of a particularly challenging part of Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And Paul is addressing the issue of why so many Jews had not grasped hold of Jesus and instead rejected him. For the Romans and for us, this is not just a sort of interesting chapter in history unrelated to our central concern as Christians. It's really answering a question that strikes at the heart of God's faithfulness and whether he really can be trusted to keep his promises. It was vital for the Roman church amongst whom they'd sort of stepped out of the relative safety of being seen by the Roman Empire as Jews and were being heavily persecuted. They were being put up in poles and lit a light. They were being thrown to the lions for entertainment. It's a great concern for them to know whether God really could be trusted to keep his promises. And I want to suggest it's a great concern for us too. We don't face uh, anything even remotely similar in terms of persecution. How I think it plays out for us is that if we don't really believe God can be trusted, if this great plan is going to come to fruition, we're always kind of tempted to kind of hedge our bets a bit and sort of say, well, I want to have the best life I can have here and I also want to be uh, part of a community where I'm told that I'm saved by grace if this is all true. And it can produce a bit of half-heartedness amongst Christian churches, particularly in the West, where we live amongst such luxury. So in chapter 9, before our reading today, the Apostle defends God against such a charge of unfaithfulness, saying he's never been about choosing people on the basis of ancestry, but always on the basis of his promises. It has always been God's will to choose in whom he saves. It's part of God's nature to have mercy 
upon those whom he chooses to have mercy. And we as God's creation have no right to question him on that. Paul argues, quoting the Old Testament extensively, that God's plan has always been to save many Gentiles and a remnant of Israel. And that if, that, if that explains God's sweeping plan of salvation from God's perspective, where we jumped into the reading today really explains it from ours. The Apostle uh, goes on to, to work out that the fault of so many of the Jews was that they pursued their right standing with God through their good works and obedience to the law, which just never works because of human sin. They didn't grasp that the law always pointed beyond itself to a relationship with God where we have to trust him by faith to cleanse us from our sin and to make us righteous before him. Romans 10, starting at verse 2 says, For I can testify about them, referring to the Jews, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know that the righteousness the righteousness of God and sought to establish it on their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. As Paul has already explained, it is Jesus' death on the cross to stand in our place to bear God's wrath against sin that provides a way for each one of us to be righteous. In right standing, before a holy God, having had our record of sins washed away. So verse 9 tells us, The road to salvation is clear. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The doors to heaven have been flung open by Jesus. He is Lord of all peoples of the earth and richly blesses everyone who calls upon his name. Different cultures have always conceived of death differently and what happens next, as we've had a bit of an insight already this morning into the Buddhist worldview and the kids' talk. In our culture here in Adelaide, we tend to push death behind a curtain in life so that most years we can pretend it's not there. And I know for many of our regulars and visitors today, that's been pushed into your life in recent weeks and you've felt the sting of it. And we tend to comfort ourselves as a society with vague notions that the departed are smiling down on us, vague hopes of an afterlife where the beer's always cold and the chicken wings are just right, with loved ones all around and golf or the perfect wave never ending. So that we can push the concept of our own death down the line and we certainly don't talk about God's wrath and judgment against sin in polite company. That's considered fairly unenlightened these days. Yet the Bible is clear, cover to cover, that both death and judgment before a holy God are coming for us all. And it's only those who accept God's righteousness through faith in Jesus, deepen our hearts and confessed on our lips that we'll be saved. So as we consider all those in our world that don't know Jesus and our response to his great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, we have the fairly simple logic of Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. 
How then can they call on the one that have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. And as Paul continues on to the Jews who rejected God's free offer of righteousness in Jesus, God says he will make them both jealous and angry, we're told in verse 19, and as the prophet Isaiah was so bold to predict, as we read in verse 20, God will say, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask of me. Because God is revealing himself to people from all nations, those not seeking him, those not even asking for him, and because he does it through his servants proclaiming his words about Jesus, we as God's people are always to be of those who have central concern is to send people everywhere to proclaim the good news of Jesus. As we do so, we have a wonderful assurance from Romans that God is a God who keeps his promises. He has a plan. It hasn't changed. And he will see it through to the very end, an end we read about in Revelation. As we see that grand picture of a great multitude of people that no one can count, from every tribe, nation, people and language standing before the throne of God and the Lamb who sacrificed himself our Lord Jesus. Praising God with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And our passage ends with one of the more famous sort of lines in Revelation. We were told, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. Talks about being led to springs of living water and God wiping away every tear. Words used at many a funeral to bring comfort, and rightly so. Yet out of context and into a culture like ours, we really don't see their true beauty. This image in Revelation is one of great relief set amongst layer upon layer of imagery depicting for us a world beset by tyranny, chaos, persecution and destruction. The first readers of this would have deeply connected with such imagery living at a very dangerous time to be a Christian as many were martyred and dispossessed of family and home by the Romans. Many have experienced such tyranny, chaos, persecution and destruction down through the ages and in recent centuries via world wars, genocide, martyrdom under cruel regimes like Stalin, Pol Pot and Hitler. While we sit in comfort, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world do not and are persecuted severely. All the indicators from around the world in our information age indicate that persecution is going up at an alarming rate. Many have taken the gospel to a new tribe or people group for it to cost them not only their comforts, their family, their friends, but for many their very lives. To all those, can you understand how this picture from Revelation burns so brightly? It's a wonderful picture 
of giving everything for a truly worthy cause, the most worthy cause in all of human history. This picture from Revelation is one of lying on the battlefield in the end, exhausted, victorious, in the very presence of an all-conquering God being comforted by him. We here in Colonel Light Garden, surrounded by such peace, such serenity, such wealth, can easily miss the stunning beauty of a picture like this. We've been given so much from God, great wealth compared to the rest of the world and the power, it seems, to choose our own destiny. But as we finished in Proverbs last week, such power and wealth are not to be used for self-indulgence by the Christian. But for the sake of others, the poor, the downtrodden, those without a voice, and most importantly of all, to join with God on his great mission to bring these words of eternal life concerning Jesus to many across Adelaide, our country and our world. As Isaiah's prophecy rang out so many millennia ago that God can say, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. The New Testament simply doesn't conceive of a Christian faith that is a private matter for personal comfort amidst lives of luxury, which is the way our world will try and pull us. It's the way our world will try and define us and contain us. Instead, the Bible puts before us a church that is giving all under the banner and headship of Jesus, giving up comfort, stepping into the fray together. A strong and personal commitment to God's worldwide mission is not only biblically mandated, but it's a great sign in our hearts and to see developed amongst our church community to show each other that we really get that being a Christian is not about ourselves. We no longer live for ourselves, we live for Christ and all those who don't know him. So today, after hearing from Nigel and Rose, we'll sing and then I'll uh, be back to give you some simple steps that you can take to enter back into the fray once more or perhaps for many of you to take a further step or perhaps for some of you to take your first step away from comfort towards the fight so that you too can see the beauty of this image from Revelation of what it really means to lie on the battlefield at the end, exhausted and victorious.